Exodus chapter 17 is where we spoke of a week ago where uh, the water sprang from the rock in the wilderness as Moses was commanded by God to go and take the staff that God had gave him and ramp on that rock. And we use that allusion to Christ being the rock of ages. And we also learned that Jesus, he stood up back in John chapter number 6. He stood up at a solemn assembly on the Passover as they celebrated this event and spoke and said, I am the water. I am the water from heaven. As Jesus gathered the attention of the Jews that were gathered there, as they were celebrating this moment, Jesus was the illusion that we see back in Exodus chapter 17. From this point on, you'll see from, uh, from back in chapter 16 uh, of the manna, it was Jesus who is the bread of heaven and John chapter 6 as well. Uh, you'll keep seeing an, uh, analogies and you'll see foreshadowing of God who will, who will fulfill His promises that we get to see that the, the journey of the children of Israel through the wilderness as we are going through our lives as pilgrims. But we find all we need in Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're picking up right here in John. I'm saying I'm thinking John. Turning in Exodus chapter number 8. I would love for you to go there. There's a Bible in your pew. Be sure to open it as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. If you were here a couple of months ago, we finished up Genesis and we have been going straight through Exodus together and we will continue here tonight. Now we're going to see where the children of Israel, as they're living from hand to mouth, they remember they're picking up meat every morning as the quail are there in the camp. That God provides meat for them every morning. Not only does He provide meat, He allows them to have some kind of manna, a coriander seed. And when they cook it and bake it, it's, it's fluffy like a, a honey wafer is how they described it. The manna, and whatever you translate that word, it's what is this? Or you can say, what is this? It depends on your attitude when you look at what God provides. You can say, is this is all He provides? Or you can say, this is what He provides. It's all in your attitude. It's all in the soil of your heart. Amen. So we see here that God provides hand to mouth. Sometimes God needs to do that. Sometimes we're too blessed. We're too blessed with health, prosperity. We're too blessed with a, a, a sound mind. Sometimes we face afflictions and God places those on us to drive us to our knees to pray to Him. Amen. And now we're going to see as these little slaves that come out of Egypt who live hand to mouth every day, much like we do congregation, as we live by His mercy and His graces that are new every morning according to Lamentations that we are just a, a shadow of the Israelites as we're depending upon God with each new day. Now they're taking arms. Can you imagine Moses and his uh, his sidekick Joseph uh, Joshua here at this point as they're getting ready to face the Amalekites? These are those who rose up against them as they were coming out of Egypt. If you would like to write in the margin or write jot down Deuteronomy chapter 25 at this point whenever the, the Egyptians released the Israelites. They were going out of the country. The Israelites were walking. As they were moving along, the Amicalites came up behind the Israelites and started attacking the weaker ones who walked a little bit slower. Those who were wary and behind, who were weary, they would take advantage of those that were weaker among the nation of Israel. And God does not forget
forget. And now there begins a war as the Amalekites, they are related to Esau. Everybody remembers Esau. He's one of those characters that shot up in the uh, back in Genesis. He was the brother of Jacob. This family now has grown into a mighty nation. And Esau, as he contended against his own brother Jacob, now the nation hates Israel as well as this two brotherhoods are conf uh, uh, conflicting against each other. And it spills over into nations. Many times, uh, like last night, me and Sherry, as many of you, I'll use uh, an analogy you might understand. We watched Andy Griffith and they showed a, a part where they ripped off the stories from the Hatfields and McCoys. They just fought each other. And finally, Andy worked it all out. Hey, this Andy Griffith show worked out at the end. But the, we know that many times that grudges carry on from generation to generation. The next generation hates that person because they learn from their mom and daddy. Prejudice goes on from uh, generation to generation. It's taught from each generation on. And the only thing that will heal grudges, the only thing that will heal prejudice, the only thing that will heal hate is the gospel. Amen. So now we see that the Amicalites and the Israelites are getting ready to go to the war and we'll see how God is going to take the children of Israel and use them in a mighty way. We'll look at verse number 8 of chapter 17. Would you read with me? The Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So we see here that Moses is not just going to stand there. You must read the text and understand what Moses is doing. He's not standing over the battlefield with his hand in the air just looking at the children of Israel. As he's standing there, he's interceding. He'll be praying the whole time he stands on that hill holding that staff in his hand. And so Joshua, in verse number 10, Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with the Amalek and with while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. Now Aaron was, of course, his brother, and Hur was the brother of his Ethiopian's wife, Zipporah. Hur was his brother-in-law. So standing on top of the hill with Moses holding the staff was Hur and, of course, Aaron, the high priest of God at this point. Now in the valley, we hear that Joshua is going to war which, against Amalek. And now verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed and whenever he lowered his hand Amalek prevailed. At this point we can see he physically dropped his hand. However Moses was praying at this point. He was interceding over the children of Israel and when he grew weary we see that Amalek would rise up above the children of Israel and whenever Moses rose his hand again he rose up and lifted up the name of Joshua and the people who were fighting they would prevail. This tells us that in, uh, there may be wars and rumors of wars within our nation. There may be conflicts but it goes beyond the natural to the supernatural. Amen. We fight not against flesh and blood but against principalities in high places. Now this time of year it starts to get a little spooky if you haven't noticed as October starts to roll around and Halloween comes along and people start getting nervous especially Christians who aren't fully informed of who their God is. They don't know that their God is in the heavens who reigns over all principalities. That the devil is still his devil. He keeps him on a leash. He is God and there is no other contender. Amen. 
So you don't have to fear about the witch doctor down the road. You don't have to worry about the demons and the things that go knock in the night. If you find a principality in your house, stand on firm and speak the Word of God and say, I belong to Jesus and by the power of His great might, leave my home. Amen. You might see some people move out of your house. Amen. But anyway, but here we see in verse number 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. In verse number 12, But when Moses' hand grew weary, so he took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands were steady until going down of the sun. We see here that Moses grows weary. He grows tired from praying. Have you ever prayed that much that you've grown tired and weary from praying? Nowhere in this chapter do we see that Joshua, who's swinging the sword, grows weary. But the one doing the greater work grows weary. Church, I want you to see tonight the importance of prayer. All this was hinged on the prayer of Moses as he interceded for the people of Israel. Joshua, of course, God used him in a mighty way. And he also used Moses. Moses interceded for the people. Joshua fought for the people. But we have a great conqueror named Jesus Christ who fights for us. Amen. We have a great intercessor named Jesus who prays over us. So why do you lower your weary head if your God fights for you? Why? Why do you, why do you wonder if your existence even matters? If there's a God, like it says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, who prays over you. If you have no worth, I assure you that God would not pray over you. But our God intercedes. Amen. Many times we find our value in what we wear. Many times we find who we are in our identity in the label in the clothes that we wear or what we drive. Another name on our car makes us feel important. Or if we live in a certain subdivision that has a certain fancy name on it, we get our identity from that. But Christian, we get our identity from Christ who fights for us and prays all for us. I'm feeling that thing. Jesus fights for us. Not only did He win the battle to win us out of sin, death, hell, and the grave, that we don't have to fear death anymore, but we can live our life, even though this life is bitter, we can still taste of that sweet grace that Jesus only provides. That we have a joy unspeakable. As bitter as this life gets, we can still keep on keeping on because we look to the hill. No, we don't see Moses standing there interceding. We see Christ stretched out. Moses had a staff in his hand, but my victor had a nail in his hand as they placed his sin on Christ and his righteousness on me. That keeps me keeping on, keeping on. Amen. Amen. So we see Moses growing weary. But rest assured, your Jesus does not grow weary now. He's seated at the hand, right hand of the Father. Here, Moses is seated out of weariness. He sits down because he's tired. His brother and brother-in-law holds up his hands. But our Jesus is seated, not because he's weary, but get this, you better hear me well and understand what I'm trying to tell you. He's seated because the work is done. Yeah. 
No, 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 you misunderstand. In a little while, we're going to see where Moses builds the tabernacle. He'll build the, the, the menorah. He'll build the, 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 the incense, the table. The, the, he'll build the basin with the, the bulls up under it. That They go and do ceremonial washing. He'll build the Ark of the Covenant. And inside, there is no chairs inside the temple. Do you know why? Because you always got to be working. Moving around, burning incense, slaughtering lambs, moving and working. Because that's what religion does. In the Old Testament, it says, do this, do this, do this, do this. Go slaughter this lamb on this day. Sprinkle blood here. Tie from your spice rack. But in the New Testament, Jesus does it all. It is finished. That is what He said when He hung His head down on the cross. It is finished. Amen. And now He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen. Now you can rest. No, 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 no. You didn't hear me. You can rest. You ain't got to go to church. You ain't got to tithe. You ain't got to read your Bible. You get to. How can I not read about the one who loved me so? Who knew me better than anybody in this room. Better than my own mama knows me. Who knew my, the skeletons in my closet and all the dirt I put under the rug. He still knew me and yet He died for me. How can I not fall in love with a Savior like that? And now He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He gives me access to the Father through Him. And He's not seated out of weariness. He's seated because it's all done. Y'all don't understand. I come from a background, from a work-based gospel. You got to do this, brother. You can't. You got. You got to keep yourself saved. You got to. You got to do this and this and this. This is what's required of you. No, no. Jesus has done it all for me. And that makes me want to do all those things now. It makes me want to love other people. Not just grind it, grind it and fake it till I make it. I don't have to do that anymore. For my Jesus has saved me to the uttermost. Has kept me. He walks with me, talks with me, and tells me I am His very own. Amen. And that gives me hope. Yes. Hope. Such short supply in this world today. Moses is weary, seated on the stone. But my Jesus is a conqueror seated on the throne. Amen, somebody. So we see here, they fought all day according to verse number 12. One brother and a brother-in-law on the other side holding his hands. So we see that intercessory is a wearying job. Most of we throw the word around, I'll pray for you, but do we really pray for you? Do I really pray for you? We, we say it, it's almost cliche now, I'll be praying for you, but do we really? It's the easiest thing to say, but the hardest thing to do. You might say, that's not that hard, but you ain't really prayed, I guess, because it is a wearying thing. I'm talking about prayers where your tears stain the carpet, sweat builds up on your back and your voice is gone because you have cried out to God in such a way there's no more strength found in you. This is the kind of prayer that Moses prays of the children of Israel. And it's the same kind of praying that Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cries and weeps before God. And God starts to place upon Him the sins of His people. The sins of us who are gathered here today. God takes your sin and my sin and personally puts it on Jesus Christ. And already in the garden, before the scourge of the, 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 the ripping of the flesh across His back from Pilate's whip, or before it, they put the thorn into His forehead, He starts to weep. And He feels the pressure of sin. And He cries out to God. If there's any other way 
But not my will, Lord. Your will be done. There's no other way. You can't tithe your way into heaven. There's no other way. You can't be kind and recycle, vote Democrat, Republican to get into heaven. You can't be a good Christian and be moral. There's no other way. Jesus has to die for yours and my sin. And He gladly does it. Amen. Laying down His life, His perfect, holy, spotless life in exchange for my stained, ruined, wretched, addicted, nasty, filthy sin. So excuse me if I get a little animated about my Jesus. For you do not know where He has brought me from. You have no idea where He found me. You weren't there in that tomb when they rolled the stone away and He spoke my name. And I ran to Him as quick as I could. For the only thing that held me down were the chains of hell, death, and the grave. But my Jesus set me free. Amen. Blessed hope. As we see here, Moses is weary. But we know in Isaiah, he does not grow weary. My Jesus. You might get tired of me. You might get aggravated if I call you every day and tell you about my problems. They say, don't let trouble last too long and don't let it cost too much because people will start to drop off. As anybody knows, if you lose a loved one or some kind of calamity comes to your household, people will gather around quickly, but sooner or later they start to trickle off. But Jesus is not like that. He's long-suffering, patient, and kind. Merciful. Not a walk out on you kind of Jesus. A Jesus that will walk with me in the dark places, in the depths of depression. A Jesus who will keep me close whenever I dance on the edge of hell. Who will snatch my chain once in a while to make sure to remember that I am His and He is mine. That's my God. We see here that Moses grown weary in verse number 12 and verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and the people with the sword. Because of the prayers of Moses. Well, we must also remember that Jesus' Hebrew name is Yeshua HaMashiach. That is how you say it in Hebrew. But to say His name, Jesus in Greek is Joshua Joshua is the same name that we see here in Joshua verse 13. Joshua being a foreshadowing of Christ. Once again, Moses was a foreshadowing of Christ. God must establish the law to show us what the standard was. And He does it through Moses. And He establishes Joshua to show us that Jesus is a conqueror who will go forth and make a way for us. And He does it through Joshua. Jesus fulfills all the prophecies that we're looking at now. So we see here this Joshua. This Joshua conquers and overwhelms Amalek. Who is Amalek is a, he's a foreshadowing of the enemy. I'm not talking about debt collectors that are knocking on your door. I'm not talking about pains and suffering. I'm talking about sin, death, hell, and the grave that has conquered and held you. And Jesus conquers and wins you. Amen. And Amalek, he beats him with the sword. In verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under the sun. At this point, God tells Moses to keep record of this great day. To speak it, not for Moses, but for Joshua. Joshua will be the next generation that will rise up and lead the people once Moses passes. 
So God tells Moses to write it down and speak it into Joshua's ears. Church, that's why some of you with silver hair who can remember what God has done in the past needs to remind us this young preacher who stands by this pulpit and talk about the greatness of God. Some of you can stand up or even whisper in my ear like Joshua say, hey, I remember a time when God came through in a mighty way. I saw it in this community. I saw it in my own life. And remind us that God is faithful to you and He'll be faithful to us. Moses is to recite it in Joshua's ear. Moses is to write it down. Parents, you are to write down the great miracles that God has done in your life. To sit your children on your knee and you will say, There was a time when I didn't think I was going to make it. But God brought me through Moses is to tell Joshua to make a memorial to remember. There's a reason because Joshua is a fighter. He's going to be swinging the sword. And many times we get so busy doing God's work. We get our hands, we're always moving. And we always think that it's dictated on us. That we think that it's all on my shoulders. i gotta, I got to keep going. And Moses speaks into the ears of Joshua. No, Joshua, there was a time when God won the battle. That God undergirded you. God strengthened you. We need to be reminded the younger generation needs the older generation. This new trend within the OFWB and every church and every denomination where they just want young people. Young people is crazy, y'all. I don't know if you know it. They don't even know which bathroom to use. They're eating Tide Pods. They're crazy. So we need to the tethering, that we need the anchoring of the older generation saying God was faithful to us, He'll be faithful to you. Did you know when I came to this church, I did not know many hymnals at all? No, because the churches I came of were, were not like this. This is a traditional, wonderful, grand church and I love it, but I didn't know any hymnals. So you might wonder why doesn't He lead us in hymnals? Because I don't know any. But for the last three years... You, you sing songs over and over. I'll fly away, bring it into sheaves. Jesus saves. Jesus. Those are some of my greatest hymns I've ever heard. And you may have sang them for years, but people come to those doors, never heard a hymn before, and they read those rich theological words about God's promises to His people. And then they start singing it and believing it. So keep talking, Moses. Keep speaking to the younger generation. Keep talking to those babies in the back. Telling them that God loves them and He saves them to the uttermost. And He by no means will cast them out when they fail and fall. Many times when our children go and they stumble and we grow up in church, we've got it all together, but our children lose their mind. They think, well, they're judgmental. They won't forgive me. I'll just stay out here in the world. At least the bar will accept me. I'll go over and find a stool and drink my brains out. At least I'm accepted there. Well, I'll go where everybody knows my name. You notice that's a place called Cheers, a bar? Well, they shouldn't be running to the house of the Lord. So we should extend our arms whenever they stumble through that door. If they hadn't been here a long time, don't say, where have you been? Say, boy, I've been praying for you. Yeah. Say that. Don't say, what have you been doing? Say, I've been praying for you. I'm so glad you're home. Moses repeats it into the ears of Joshua. Year after year, he reminds Joshua. It's not dictated on him. All, he, all that he does. I remember back when the flood hit. I remember I was here early one morning. It was a weekday. And I was out in the fellowship hall and I was sweeping up fish in the fellowship hall. There was fish flopping around in the fellowship hall, sweeping it up after the flood. And Tracy was coming in. He was getting ready to start ripping off insulation. 
And I was thinking, Lord, it's just me and Tracy. Hey, we're going to have to put this thing back together. And I, was, and I just became overwhelmed. And Tracy came over and said, man, why don't you go home? I said, okay. And I went on home. <laughs> I went on home. And God worked that thing out. God worked it out. He sent the boots on the ground. He sent the heart and the, the sever and the heart and the, the strength to get it done. God gets the glory. Nobody can stand here today and say it was because of me that this thing worked. No, it's because of God and God alone. Amen, somebody. Amen. So Joshua needs to be reminded. It needs to be a memorial. Moses needs to speak to Joshua because Joshua needs to hear it. Because he's got a long road ahead of him. This young preacher, I'll stand in this pulpit as long as God lets me. And I have a long ministry ahead of me. So I need Moses to whisper in my ear, God is faithful. God was with me. God will strengthen you. Keep on keeping on. Amen, Kevin. Woo, let's keep going. And now he says in verse 14, Write it as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. And I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under the heaven. God keeps that promise. He swears by His name. He utterly wants to destroy Amalek and He finally does it in 2 Samuel chapter number 2. Uh, uh, he sent one guy to do it, Saul, and he doesn't do it. He keeps Agag alive, the king, until finally Samuel comes up and says, Why is this bleeding of goats in my ears do I hear? And Saul, not wanting to hurt the people or be influenced by the people, he kept the best of the livestock and the strongest of the people alive, even keeping the king alive. And that's a foreshadowing of sin. Finally, Samuel called the king Agag to him, who was an Amalek. He was a king of the wicked people who attacked the Israelites, and he hacks him into pieces in the presence of the people. Basically, that little story should tell you to be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Be ruthless with sin. Don't allow it to harbor. Don't deal with your sin and just say, I'll put up with this sin. I'll, I'll allow it to live. I'll, I'll allow it to cohabitate with me. Be killing sin. Oh, it will truly be killing you. One of you are getting out of this alive. Either you or sin. One will conquer the other. There is no cohabitation. Here God is saying, me and Amalek will not coexist. One will die. One will be destroyed. And one will reign. And God says, I will blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. In verse 15, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. <laughs> or Jehovah Nisi, my banner. Moses builds an altar and he, after the, the conquest is done and the battle is over, after the weary soldiers come back into the camp, they don't throw a party. They don't throw a parade. They have church. Why? Who gets the glory? Do they honor? Do they, do they build a monument to Joshua? No. They, like the Romans, they would build arches at conquest. They would build big buildings with an arch in between. And they would march through it and they would put a monument there to remember their conquest. But they don't do that here because the church don't build monuments to people. We build altars to God. Amen. Here, they build an altar. And they called to the Lord as my banner. What does that mean? 
Yes, we are patriotic. We're Americans. We love our flag and we look at the flag. We know what it means. We know who spilled their blood to, to protect our borders, to keep us safe, give us liberty and the life, uh, pursuit of freedom and uh, all those wonderful things when we look at our flag, the symbol. But here Moses says that God is our banner. God is the one we look to. He is holy in all His ways. He's righteous and good. He's the one who feeds us from hand to mouth every morning. He leaves quail on the ground. He, he, gives us, he gives us manna. He lets water flow from the rock. He is our God who protects us and keeps us. Why should we doubt anything when we look to our banner who is God? Now that was the children of Israel in that time, in that place. It's called hermeneutics where you don't take something out of the text and spin it. But for us, our banner, the church, our banner is Christ. Amen. Notice our crosses don't have Jesus still laying there like the Catholics do. At the Catholic Mass, they re redo his, uh, his execution over and over. Here, we celebrate that He's no longer on the cross, neither in the tomb, but ascended on high to pray over me and to keep me. Amen, somebody. He is our banner. He is our strength. He is the one we get our identity in. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. All day Jesus. Every day Jesus. He is our banner. And we remember what that banner stands for. It stands for the great exchange. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17-22. Taking your sin and taking the righteousness of Christ and exchanging them. Putting the righteousness of Christ on you and me. All His good works, His kindness and His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness, placing it on me. Taking all the wickedness within me my vile rebellion against the God of all hosts, putting it on Jesus. For the wages of sin is death. Christ died for my sins. Amen. He lived a life that I could not live, that I might live for Him. Here we see that Moses builds an altar. I ask you, congregation, after a great conquest, after coming out of a great dark valley, after coming through hard financial situations, after going through hard times or a hard month or a hard year or a hard decade, where is your altar? For truly, if you got through it, it was not your own doing. It was God and God alone who sustained you and kept you. So where is your altar? Is it besides your bed? Do you bend the knee until you wear the hardwood out beside your bed and say, thank you, Jesus, for carrying me through? Are you in the middle of the valley? Will you just rest on His promises? Today is dark and it might be fleeting and you might be hurting and you might be wounded. Just look to His promises that I'll never leave you or forsake you. I by no means will cast you out. Lo, I'm with you till the end of the age. Nothing will separate us from His love. Height, death, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Amen. So Lord, even if I know I'm hurting, I'm in the middle of the storm, You're with me. Where is your altar? Do you build a great monument to your accomplishments? Well, I put my nose to the grindstone and I got myself out. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Have you ever pulled yourself up by anything, uh, let alone your bootstraps that hang lower than you do? That's physically impossible. And as Don, don't say it anymore. Just say, the Lord tarried and the Lord carried me. Amen. Amen. The Lord is my banner. 
In verse 16, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war on Amalek from generation to generation. Here, Moses is making sure that the altar is built to remind the children of Israel. He even engraves upon that altar that this is the banner of the Lord. And upon His throne, the, the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Verse 16 is saying that God promises by His throne that He will destroy Amalek. The Amaleks in this story, I hope in verse 8 through 16, you don't relate to Moses, you don't relate to Aaron or her, or you don't relate to Joshua. I hope that you relate to Amalek, the enemy of God. I personally relate to Amalek because I was a rebellious person against God. I was His enemy. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners. I hated God. I wanted nothing to do with Him. He was a huge buzzkill. He took all my fun away. I don't want nothing to do with Him. I want to do what I want to do. I want to live the way I think is right. Until finally, He changed my heart. Changed me from an enemy to a child. Seated me at His table. He swore to destroy all evil. If God, and you ask people why do bad things happen? The real question is why does God allow anything good to happen when we all deserve hell, death, and the grave? Why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? That's a ridiculous statement. What you really should say, one time, something bad happened to the very best person who ever lived. And he volunteered. His name is Jesus. So anything I get other than hell, death, and the grave is a huge plus. I deserve hell. But He's lavished grace and mercy upon me. He forgives me, He sustains me, and He holds me. By His might and His power, I'm standing behind this podium. By His strength, I'm able to breathe in and gasp air and form words that go through the air and land in your ears and somehow you're able to make a, a, a meaning out of all this noise I'm making by His grace and His power. So we see here that God swears He will destroy Amalek from generation to generation. And finally, when David rolls in on the scene in 2 Samuel, that whole book, we read of wars where he destroys Amalek. And finally, the ultimate defeat of Amalek will come in Esther. Esther, who's a beautiful queen in a foreign country, far away from God. God still uses her. But the enemy was from Amalek, Haman. He had designed some places to destroy the Jews and God worked the thing out and that Haman was killed on the very weapon he used to destroy the people of God. Finally, Haman hangs on the gallows. A wicked man dies. He gets what he deserves. And you're sitting here today and you have been wicked and you deserve hell, death, and the grave. But Christ bore your sins and He hung on the tree on your behalf. So what right do you have to complain about anything? Grace, grace, amazing grace. So tonight as we...